Thank you. I'm Chuck Stiggy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. My, what a bunch of people. I wonder how many of you are drunks. Wow! That's good. You know, Buttermilk says he hopes I don't laugh this up. So he completely ruined my opening remarks. <laughs> I was going to tell you that up until now I had heard all the hosts and all the masters of ceremony and all the speakers and they'd all done a real good job. And I had talked with uh, Talbot and straightened him out for tomorrow morning. So there wasn't any chance of anybody now louting this thing up because it's a success already. But he messed me up here and I can't say that. So I won't. I come to Arkansas every 17 years. <laughs> they sure like me in Arkansas. <laughs> I think they got me sort of mixed up with the Little Rock clan. <laughs> I expect most of you here today never heard of the Little Rock plan. But they, uh, they had a plan here a long time ago when this thing first started. And you had to leave your wife and your job and your kids. And I presume you had to give them all your money and then go to hospital. And then they gave you a course of sprouts and if you passed, they'd let you in. <laughs> to the society. When I was over 17 years ago in Little Rock, they called them then the old Ironside troop. <laughs> there were just few of them left. But I bet you a lot of them stayed sober. Reminds me of a little deal they got up in Canada. You know, they got a lot of Indians up in Canada. And some of them up there drink a little of that hooch. And uh, they have some groups amongst them, AA groups. And in the one area where I was up there, they would allow you one slip. They'd go to any length to get you sober. And they'd allow you one slip, and they'd come get you and bring you back. But if you said twice, they beat the bejesus out of you. <laughs> so they only slipped once up there. I 
I'm glad to be here, and I want to thank the committee for allowing Mr. C. and I to share this evening with you, this entire weekend, as a matter of fact. And I want to thank you all for coming. It's nice when you come a thousand or two miles to jack a little if somebody comes, isn't it? <laughs> Buttermilk says, I hope the hell you thought up something pretty to say because I came a long way to introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't guarantee anything. So happens that I love this program and I love its people and that's the only reason I'm here. That is the only reason I'm here, to share my experience, strength and hope such as it is with anybody who wants it. It's the only reason I ever get up at a podium in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have now some 9,450 days that I would not have had were it not for the grace of God through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am most grateful. I have no doubt that the reason that I have been so slap happy for 25 years and 6 months is because I didn't get here too early. As long as I had choice, I couldn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't come as long as I had choice. My choice was never to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't come as long as I could keep from it. But in January 1946, I ran out of everything. And there was no place else for me to come but here. What are you pointing that at me for? <laughs> so I'd have one uh, little piece of counsel for all of you who might be a little bit alcoholic and who might be still taking a few snippers, uh, be not discouraged. The time will come when there ain't no place else to go. <laughs> and that time happened to me in January 1946. <clears throat> I couldn't even investigate this deal. I didn't want to know anything about it. Many of you have heard this, but I'll tell you again. My next to the last drunk was a little geographic. I drove 6,000 miles in a blackout. I drove from Beverly Hills to Louisville, Kentucky, to North Michigan, back to the coast. And I don't remember 5% of it. 
I finally got back home and went to bed to finish my drunk, which was the place I finished them all in the last ten years that I drank. <clears throat> Flat on my back in bed drinking the clock around. And so, there I was, finishing my drunk. I never quit as long as I could get up and get another supply. When I couldn't even lift my head off the pillow, I had to quit because my family did not understand me. They wouldn't bring me in anything to drink. <laughs> they insisted that I get it myself if I was going to drink it. Well, this time came and I had to sober up. Now, I never knew how to sober up in any other way than to die until I could start living again. In my day, I knew nothing of any easy way to get sober. I never heard of a drying out place or going to the hospital or anything like that to get sober. I just died until I could live. And uh, so the time came when I had to sober up and maybe it was 24, 36 hours after my last drink that I was able to go to the kitchen and get a glass of buttermilk. Pardon me, sir. <laughs> and uh, I did. Well, Mrs. C and Dick were sitting in the living room and they heard me let out a beller and heard me hit the floor. And they came trotting out there expecting to find me in a convulsion, which was my want. But I wasn't convulsing. I had used up all of my convulsions. And this time I was just lying there uh, doing nothing. <laughs> They tell me I was a very peculiar color. I was blue. And they couldn't wake me up, so they got all exercise. And called for the oxygen squad from the Beverly Hills Receiving Hospital to come down and wake me up. <clears throat> well, I got to tell you something that I think is funny now. You know, the many, many times that I've come to after, say, just a lousy little 30-day drunk to find all the people in town looking for me, 90% of them just tell me they never want to see me again. <laughs> now, isn't that something? They dog you down. Just to tell you they never want to see you again. Why the hell don't they leave you alone in the first place? <laughs> but now they got to tell it. And I'm pretty sure my wife and kids have been praying for me to die for at least five years. And they come out and they didn't find me dead. And they get all exercised about it to get the oxygen squad to wake me up. Well, they finally did, I think. <laughs> and from the, from the time I came to, I remember what happened. There was a young doctor with him. 
And he was telling me that to all intents and purposes I've been dead. That they'd had a hell of a time waking me up. That they were quite sure that nobody would ever wake me up under those conditions again. And he told me if they were me, they wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> I got the impression they were against it. Well, it might have been another 24, 36 hours when I was able to get the old dirty bathrobe on and start walking up and down the living room floor, sweating, freezing, shaking, dying, and walking. That's the only way I knew how to sober up. And I was doing just that, and Mrs. C was standing over by the fireplace. We had a corner fireplace in the living room there. And she was standing over there watching me. And as I was walking away from her, she said, Chuck, don't you think you might get a little help if you'd read the book Alcoholics Anonymous? And I turned on her like a lion. And I said, you, my very own wife, suggested that I read a book written by a bunch of gumps. <laughs> I who have read all the good books for the good authors. And you want me to... Why, well, I says you wound me deeply. <laughs> Mind you, I've just been dead 48 hours before. And she wounds me deeply. And I polished her off completely by saying, and besides, I can write a better book than that myself. Now, that was just 90 days before I came crawling into Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, isn't it strange that a guy like me could drink for 25 years and up until the very last drunk always have a perfectly legitimate reason for every drunk I was ever on? And it was never my fault. Up until my very last drunk, it was never my fault. It was your fault. You stupid, mean people. <laughs> if you monkeys had lived like I knew you should, and like I knew I told you how, I wouldn't have had to drink. But you wouldn't do it. So I got drunk at you. My wife was a real good reason for me to get drunk. She got me drunk many times. But her mother was a much better one. Her mother lasted for five years after all the excuses had burned up. She was a king-size excuse or reason. See, she only had one kid, and I was married to her. And she was living with us, and she had a grandstand feet watching me crucify her only daughter. And she didn't like me very good. And I didn't like her that good. 
because you see, if she hadn't been there, I wouldn't have had to crucify her daughter. But just in passing, she lived with us for five years after I came to the program. And it is remarkably astonishing what this program did for her. <laughs> I'm quite sure that if she'd come in the year that she'd passed away and had found me slapping her daughter all over the living room, she would have turned to Mrs. C and she would have said, Why, Elder, what have you done? <laughs> because by that time, I could do no wrong in her sight. God rest her soul. <clears throat> To have been able to drink for 25 years and never to be able to see if there be fault, it's fine. You know? Now that happened to me on my last drunk. I came to see that if there be fault, it's mine. And you know something? I've never had to have a drink since then. Since I said to myself, if there be fault, it's mine. I have never had to take a drink. So I'm very much in accord with our book. When it says the first condition for sobriety is to accept ourselves exactly as we are, where we are right now. This is the first condition. You'll find it the first sentence in the second paragraph of chapter 3. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Now, why is that so necessary? Because we have gotten ourselves caught in a trap that we cannot spring alone. We have to have help. And it is impossible for the likes of us to get help until we recognize the need for help. There's no way that even God can help us when we won't let him. And so the first condition for sobriety is that we accept ourselves exactly as we are where we are right now. The second condition is that sobriety must come first. Now this is not only difficult for the alcoholic to come to see, but it's almost impossible for the non-alcoholic to come to see. That sobriety must come first. And I am one who believes that unless and or until sobriety comes first, we can't have it. And unless it remains first, we cannot keep it. The book says that like this. If you have decided you want what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it. 
Then you're ready to take certain steps. Any length puts the top. Top man on the totem pole. Because unless and or until it comes first, you and I are not going to do the things necessary to obtain and maintain our sobriety. We're not going to do it. It is necessary, in my opinion, that if we be alcoholic, we either drink the last dregs out of the bottom of the cup, as I did, or we must come to see that the only thing ahead of us is permanent insanity or an alcoholic death. Or we will not do the things necessary to bring it about and to maintain it. I remember Mr. Speech spoke of this today. I attended meetings every night for six months with the great fear upon me that I couldn't have this thing. I didn't think I had enough left either mentally or physically to get it. But I wanted it more than life. And so I was in the meeting every night. I never talked to Miss C about this at all, as she said this afternoon. Because I wasn't talking to her about much of anything. <laughs> we were not, at that time, communicating. <laughs> she was getting rid of me legally. Well, after six months of a meeting every night, I woke up to the fact that I was sober and had been for six months. And it was then I started talking, and I haven't set up yet. <laughs> 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I haven't set up yet. So when I discovered this, I came home and I talked to Mr. Steele's program. Couldn't help it. And as she said, I learned that she'd already read the book two or three times. And she asked me if I'd take her to a meeting. And I told her I would, and I did. She's been coming with me ever since. Well, it might have been three months after that. I suppose that I was nine or ten months sober. When I was asked to do the ten-minute spot before the regular speaker at the Beverly Hills group, that was my home group for my first eleven years. And I got up there and talk a little, and I ended up this deal by saying if it were necessary tonight for me to go to Tibet in order to maintain what I found here, I would go home, pack my little grip, come to the living room, kiss my wife, and say, honey, it's too bad, I've got to go. Now, I didn't think that was bad. <laughs> But it wasn't long after we got home until the house was rocking. <laughs> and I look over and this lady is practically in convulsion. And I said, well, honey, what's the matter with you? And she said, oh, what you said. 
She said for the first time in her life, we had an opportunity for a little happiness and a little peace and a little joy in this household. And you'd go to Tibet. <laughs> she says, don't I mean anything to you? Don't the kids mean anything to you? Don't the home mean anything, mean anything to you? Boo-hoo. <laughs> so I let her cry a little bit, and when she calmed down a little, I said, well, honey, do I mean anything to you drunk? And she says, no. Do I mean anything to the kids drunk? And she says, no. Do I mean anything to the home drunk? And she says, no. And I said, well, can't you see that this has to be first? And she couldn't. <laughs> she couldn't. <laughs> but if you would ask her now, or any time in the last many years, she would tell you whatever I have to do to maintain myself in this way, she is all for it. And, of course, so am I. Now, there's a little verse, and I use some verses once in a while. Not because I'm too much of a verse man, but simply because they, they express what I'm thinking more than I can, better than I can say myself. But there's a little verse in the good book that I was very much opposed to for 30 years before I got here. I would have argued with the Pope in Rome and all the College of Cardinals that this was either a mistranslation or a deliberate attempt to deceive. <laughs> because the verse went like this. It says, Let the man be willing to leave his mother and his father and his wife and his kids Sell all he has and give it to the poor and take up his cross and follow me. He's not worthy of me. <clears throat> and it was attributed to the carpenter. And I knew he didn't see it. Because, you see, he was a good man. And I was an evil man, and I couldn't say it myself. So I knew he, did. He, he couldn't have said it. But I wasn't sober very long until I knew that if he didn't say it, he should have. Because there's a word in that that I had never conjured with. It says, let the man be willing. And if he's willing, he don't have to. You see, I've been willing to go to Tibet for 25 years and six months, and I never even had to go to once. It's necessary, I believe, that sobriety come first and remain first. Now, the reason for this, I presume, is because we do have to have help. And our book tells us that maybe it's got to be help from a far greater than we are. The book says lack of power was our dilemma. And if we lack the power, we have to find, find it. And it has to be a power greater than we are. Obviously, says the book. Obviously, I believe that. 
Do I believe that? The book says under certain conditions, certain circumstances. It seems that there's only one defense against that first slug, the drink I must not take. And that's helpful and far greater than we are. And I believe that just as I believe I'm standing here for just a simple reason. If I could have remained sober, I would not believe that. I could not remain sober. Therefore, I believe it. Because something happened to me 25 years and six months ago, and I haven't had to have a drink or a sedating or tranquilizing pill since. And I didn't do it. So I'm quite sure that it's necessary that we get help from power greater than ourselves. I'm just as sure that perhaps one of the greatest roadblocks we have is that we get mixed up in why we are here. Why we are here. I think some of us get sidetracked into trying to get help from a power greater than ourselves instead of following the directions on the formula, you know? They might read that third step or hear somebody talk about it a little. It says we made a decision to turn our world and lives over to care of God as we understood him. And we say, uh-oh, don't understand him. I've got to get me another book. I got to get me a tutor. So we get on a tangent trying to get some help from a higher grade than we are instead of doing the things the book tells us to do. Because that second condition says if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length, any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And then it says here are the steps we took. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. We're sober. The implication is we're sober. Here are the things we did. If you want this thing, do these things. And of course, the first condition is a twofold admission of defeat. And we're not going to twofold admit that we're defeated. Unless we have taken the first two conditions, unless we've come to see and to accept ourselves as we are where we are right now, and unless sobriety is number one on our hit parade. Because it is not alcoholic thinking to admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. This is not alcoholic thinking. Powerless over alcohol, physical, unmanageable life, mental. So, it's necessary that we come up to this step, having already taken the first two, accepted the first two conditions. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. 
that's about as different from our former thinking and action pattern as you can get. I don't believe there's anybody in this room that ever ran into the bar and said, look, Joe, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life's unmanageable. Give me a double, quick. <laughs> Joe's the last guy that must know we're powerless over alcohol. We got to keep him buttered up a little, you know. We got to tell him about the merger we just put through. The railroad we just sold. Because after three or four drinks, we got to discover we forgot our pocketbook. We got to have him in shape. <laughs> we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Twofold admission of defeat. And it don't say unmanageable whilst drunk. Many of us read it that way. But that's not what it says. It says that our lives had become unmanageable, period. Stop right there. <laughs> now the second step's worse than first. Because <laughs> the second step is a left-handed admission that we're insane. <laughs> it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity well you don't need to restore a sane person to sanity right <laughs> there is an implication here <laughs> And that is a fruitcake. <laughs> and that don't say why it's drunk. <laughs> now that's another one we're not going to admit to Joe, are we? Look, Joe, I'm nuts. No. And the third step's worse than all three of them. All two of them, I mean. <laughs> Because the third one, you've got to give up the keys. And this just kills me, because the only way anybody ever got my keys was to wait till I passed out. <laughs> I can come out of a pub at 3 o'clock in the morning with my wife or yours. <laughs> and you get over to the parking lot and she says, Honey, give me the key, I'll drive. And you say, Whose car? This is my car. If you're going with me, get in. I'm driving. <laughs> but you might do that at daylight. You ain't going no place, but you still got the keys. <laughs> Step three says you got to give up the keys. You got to get a new driver. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. This is not alcoholic thinking. It's just exactly like I had walked straight north for 43 years, 
made a 180 degree turn and walked south for 25. Life is just that different. And something has to happen to an alky before these things are possible. Strange thing when you look at us. Probably two of the things that we dislike the most are dirt and weakness. And how dirty can you get? And how weak can you get? Don't answer those because I know exactly. One of the most vital memories I have of my drinking past is how hard I tried to get clean after drunk. Oh, God. Quick as you can walk, you get in a shower and you wear out two cakes of soap trying to get clean. Trying to get rid of that stench. And then you go to the barber shop and you get your ears set out and your beard scraped off. Then you put on the nicest clothes you got. We hate dirt. And how dirty can you get? And the next thing is weakness. God, how we hate weakness. We hate weakness in anybody, and much more so in ourselves. <clears throat> and again, something has to happen before we can admit defeat. Before we can surrender, something has to happen to us. If anyone of you had called me an alcoholic 30 years ago, and I could have gotten up off the floor, <laughs> I'd have kicked you right in the teeth if I could have seen you. <laughs> this is something nobody must know, not even me. You see? Something has to happen before these things are possible. Fourth and fifth steps are worse than all three that have just preceded them. The fourth step says we've made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now this is a switch. I'm the kind of a guy that had inventoried everybody I ever knew in my entire life and many people that were just walking by. <laughs> One of our great accomplishments in this thing called life prior to coming here was the fact that we knew exactly what was wrong with everybody around us. And we didn't mind telling them. And that's what endeared us to the non world. <laughs> yeah, I've got to take a searching and fearless moral inventory of me. And if you think that's an ego builder, get a thick pad and a long pencil and start writing. And I'm one who thinks that it's real good to write it, write it down, 
We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and having made it, then we have to share it. And if it had just said we admitted to God and to ourselves the exact nature of our wrongs, we'd have been pretty, it'd have been a pretty easy deal. But they slipped in a sleeper there. We admitted to our God and to ourselves and to another human being. Probably the toughest thing you and I will ever have to do in our entire lifetime is that to another human being. We got to spread this dirty linen out before a flesh and blood person. And somebody's going to be walking the streets knowing what's inside of me. This is a killer, an ego killer. And that's why it's there, to surrender us at depth. To surrender us at depth. Now, having written this down and shared it, we become willing to give it away, and we give it away. Mr. C. touched on that a little this afternoon. And it's something I love to spend just a minute on. Because many of my people continuously try to pull these old chestnuts out of the fire and beat themselves to death with it. And I don't find that my book even suggests a thing like that. My book says we write it down, we share it, then we become willing to give it away, and we give it away. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. Had it been necessary for me to get rid of my defects one at a time on my own, I would have died drunk. Because if I could have done that, I wouldn't have come to this leper colony. <laughs> I tried every way in the world to stay out of here. <laughs> now, if I could have done this, I wouldn't have had to come. I couldn't do it. And so I'm delighted to become willing to give it away and give it away. And I'm a, I'm a simple man. How do I know whether or not I gave it away? If I haven't got it, give it away. Now, isn't that silly? Isn't that silly? But that's the way it is with me. If I still got it, I didn't give it away. So I get busy on that one.